Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. And Mike, we're here with a special season-ending episode. We'll look back at, I think, all of our favorite highlights from the Canadians on both the men's and women's tours and some of the great matches and moments that stood out in 2021. Yeah, Ben, we made it through another year of the pod. Um, our third is the official podcast of Tennis Canada, our fourth together, mm-hmm. and our second in a pandemic. Who would have thought that <laughs> would, would happen? So, uh, yeah, looking forward to recapping 2021. And we've also got Michael Downey, CEO uh, and chairman of uh, Tennis Canada, joining us to sort of assess uh, how things went for us here at home. So lots to talk about. Why don't we get right to it and start on the uh, women's side of thing? things with the WTA and it was another fascinating and unpredictable year of tennis on the women's tour as we saw four different women uh, once again capture a major title in the calendar year and in terms of Canadian content we enjoyed a very unlikely and inspiring run to the U.S. Open finals from our own Layla Annie Fernandez so uh, let's break down our favorite moments of the year and how about we start with best match of the season Um, And this is in the non-Canadian division, I should say, as we will focus later on on our favorite um, Canadian uh, match of 2021. But for me, and there were so many to to choose from, but I got right into this one. It was a Roland Garros semifinal match between eventual uh, champion Barbara Kurchikova and Maria Sakkari that went to 9-7 in the third set. After three hours and 18 minutes, Sakkari held a match point earlier in the third set, but couldn't uh, convert it. And uh, I always like watching two players who are both seeking their first Grand Slam final as they get to that stage. There's so much on the line. And uh, to me, that was one of the most exciting ones uh, that didn't include a Canadian player. Yeah, that match was uh, unbelievable. I think we're on the on a similar track in terms of our thinking um, with, with certain matches, because when I was going through the classics uh, of the 2021 season, that was so high on my radar. And I remember just the stress of that final set between Zachary and Krejcikova. Zachary, it felt like she was right there with kind of a late break in the third set. There was, they were kind of tussling, um, fighting for a spot in this Grand Slam final. So that was an absolute thriller for me. Mine not featuring a Canadian. And this came late October, actually, because Indian Wells was pushed back from March, but uh, Paula Bedosa defeating Victoria Azarenka in an epic final, 7-6-2-6-7-6, and it kind of capped what was just like a ridiculous season for Bedosa, and I'll get to her a little bit more as we talk about the women's side, but this was a remarkable tournament for her, um, just rolling through players like she beat Krejcikova there, Goff, I think she defeated Kerber as well, Jabur in the semis, and then overcoming uh, the veterans Azarenka in a thrilling final, 7-6 in the third and the level of tennis was just so high and sustained throughout from both players so that was my number one not featuring yeah. a Canadian I should say also a good choice and uh, just that we're starting to mention these names though, I'm so excited to see what these players who had breakout seasons in 21 are going to do for us in in 2022 once again so much depth on the women's tour and uh, why don't we narrow it down now and pick a couple of players that we've chosen as our MVP and MIP of 2021 And I'll start with my MVP, and uh, that is Naomi Osaka. As much for her off-court courage in standing up for her own mental health and uh, and in the process helping so many others to do the same when uh, she kind of took that time out from doing uh, post-match 
press conferences because of the the pressure it was bringing onto her and a lot of courage for her to to take that stance mixed reaction but i think ultimately there was a lot of support outpouring for her um from tennis fans and many in the media alike and then on top of that she won the aussie open to make it four straight years with a grand slam to her name and she's the first female since serena williams who did that from 2007 to 2010 and before that, Justine Hennon from 2004 to 2007. So Osaka is in a pretty uh, exclusive category there. And uh, again, I'm excited to see what she can do this year. Uh, we've seen the social media pictures. She's in Australia getting ready for the first slam and, and wish her all the best. But she's my MVP uh, in more ways than one. Yeah, I, I like that selection too, because it almost felt like Osaka had a bit of a part-time season with how much tennis she actually played. And then you mentioned the fact that she defended her Australian Open title. Like she still won a grand slam and still delivered on the big stage, uh, one of her favorite tournaments to start the year. And we we know how powerful she has been through social media with Black Lives Matter messaging in 2020. And then she took another great stance, uh, I think just ahead of the French Open. And that was sort of key messaging. I, I know it received backlash at the time, but I, I think you were on the wrong side of things if you didn't support her through that. Um, I went with the more conventional pick for my MVP uh, player of the year as well. She was awarded Ash Barty. And for me, it was just, especially the first half of her season, she was so, so dominant. I know she didn't win Australia and lost in the quarterfinals, but uh, apart from that, just her season picking up um, five titles total. She won the Miami Open, beating uh, an injured Bianca late second set there in the finals, um, backed it up, got a big title on clay. And then, you know, caps it with the title at Wimbledon later in July, which is was always a dream of hers to win Wimbledon. She also picked up another WTA 1000 later in the season in Cincinnati. So uh, when she was on the court for me, she was the number one player in the world. She showed that sustained success and um, she was kind of forced to finally just shut down her season because she hadn't been back home the entire year. So you think she's on the road for the entire season with their team and producing these types of results for me, she was the MVP. Yeah. So tough for Australians because they've got so far to go to play pretty much everywhere except mm-hmm. in their home country at the start of the calendar season. So yeah, good choice and, and a likable player as well. And, and I know you don't have to be likable to be a great athlete, but it just kind of helps, I think for us to, to get behind athletes that we can relate to or that we're kind of rooting for because they're just good people. And that's the case with, with Ash Barty um, for my MIP choice, most improved player of 2021. Again, there were so many to pick. Um, I really like what Anjabur did uh, moving up her ranking from outside the top 30 to number seven, which was a career high for hers. Uh, for her, she finished at, at number 10 overall. And uh, just so many firsts uh, for an Arab woman. So doing so much for uh, women from that part of the world. And uh, at the age of 27, putting it together consistently. I've got to admire that too. This isn't someone who's considered, you know, young by tennis standards, kind of maybe mid-career and having uh, by far the biggest breakout season uh, for her. And I remember a few years ago, I put together a little um, sort of uh, image compilation of uh, younger players who I thought were were poised for a breakthrough. And she was one of the the nine I put through in this collage. And I remember someone on social media making fun of that particular choice. And uh, I make a lot of questionable choices on social media in terms <laughs> of who I, who I think is going to have breakouts or whatnot. But uh, in this case, maybe it took a little bit longer than expected, uh, but great to see the season that she had. 
Yeah, give yourself the well-deserved pat on the back for that one. Um, I, I like that. Sticking with my theme, and I, I just put her in for match of the year. I feel a little biased towards this Spanish player, but uh, Paula Bedosa is also my pick for most improved player. Barbara Krejcikova, I believe she won the award, and uh, she, certainly her improvements in the rankings and the results she had were unbelievable. But for, for me, Paula Bedosa, she's jumped from number 70 to number eight in the rankings uh, end of season. I don't think anyone could possibly have envisioned her qualifying for the end of year WTA finals, but she managed to do that uh, two titles as well um, in, in 2021, the WTA 1000, I mentioned and a quarterfinals at the French open. And I, I always kind of viewed her as a quality clay court player because the bulk of her results prior to 2021 were on clay, but her ability to completely back it up this season on other surfaces, I think was what impressed me the most and, and beating some, like high, high level players, um, you know, getting a big win over Arena Sabalenka at the WTA finals. Uh, it was really only Garbina Muguruza who finally stopped her in her tracks, but, you know, notching wins over Kerber, Azarenka, uh, Petra Kvitova, I believe, Bencic. So she's beaten all the best players to produce these types of results. Anjabur in the semifinals there at Indian Wells. So for me, um, I have her as most improved player. There are so many great picks, though, that you could have gone with really in any direction, I think, with the WTA here. It's true. It's true. And Bedosa, you know, just consistently got better as the season went on. Mm-hmm. And it was it was no fluke. It, it was consistent results throughout the season, too. And as you mentioned, she finished the year strong, making the uh, the semifinals of the uh, WTA Tour Finals, too. So good choice there. Uh, let's make it a little bit more Canadian-focused here and, and narrow it down. And this was probably the easiest uh, question or category we've come up with for our final episode of the year, which is, what is our favorite Canadian match of the year? And I'm glad that I was able to get my pick down before yours, because I'm sure you would have taken this one, and that's really... How could you go with anyone other than Leila Annie Fernandez and what she did at the U.S. Open? Really, any of those matches uh, against the, the top quality opponents from Osaka to Kerber, Svitolina, Sabalenka. I, I just remember each round thinking, well, that was the best win of her career. What's she going to be able to do next? Oh, no, wait, that's the best win of her career. And it just kept going. Each one, the excitement and the anticipation continued to build as she knocked off those players in succession. So I can't pick one in particular because each one had a life of its own and uh, and none of them were, were easy victories for her, but all proving to her that she is a uh, very worthy um, player in the top uh, 25 on the WTA now. And she mentioned to us that her goal was top 10, which she fell a little short of, but wouldn't surprise me if she was able to do it this coming year. And in truth, nothing would surprise me with Layla Annie at this point with what we saw last year. No kidding. And I should mention actually tennis.com had a great list of their top 10 selections of best matches of the year. And it was a mix of men's and women's matches. Number two on the list was uh, Layla Annie Fernandez's win over Alina Svitolina at the U S open. So they are certainly taking notice. That was such an epic match. Um, I'll give an honorable mention for me. This was actually my favorite win by Layla. And I have another pick for best Canadian match of the year, but Layla Fernandez's win over Angelique Kerber at the U S open where she was uh, kind of 
up and down, down in the first set, won it, looked like she was in trouble uh, through stretches. It was so back and forth. And then her ability to completely take over that third set when it's six to two. But the, the rallies between those two players, unbelievable lefty versus lefty matchup. And such High respect res- level too, right? <laughs> oh, I was about to say such respect yep. level in the handshake at the end from Kerber, who came across the net and was like, you know, you just played unbelievably well. It was such a thriller. Um, my Maybe pick- Kerber was making up for her handshake with uh, Bianca back in 2019. <laughs> That's and, and right. She wants, she wants to get on the, the side of uh, the good side of Canadian fans, perhaps. Um, uh, ironically, Bi- Bianca is my choice for favorite Canadian match of the year. I don't know if it was the best one or not, but I found it to be the most compelling. Her match against Maria Zachary at the Miami Open, which was a 7-6 in the third finish. And if you're looking for positive signs for Bianca's 2021, which was no doubt a disappointing one, I think, for her fans, it was that tournament in Miami where she made her way all the way through to the finals with some epic wins over a Cerebase Tormo, beating Muguruza in three sets, a win over Anisimova, and this win in particular over Zachary, where she trailed four to two in the third set. I think she was down five to four and just kept fighting and scrapping and clawing and finding a way to win in a match that lasted over three hours and I think finished, you know, around one or two a.m. in the morning. So, uh, her competitive spirit, will, and drive uh, really shone through in Miami when she reached that final. I'd love to see more of that Bianca when she is back on the tour. That, for me, was my favorite Canadian match of the year on the women's side. Yeah, that tournament from Bianca was like typical Bianca fashion, the way that she grinded out those victories. Mm-hmm. And it reminded us of what she's capable of, and it showed us that she's still capable of it. And She's taken the first part of the year off uh, starting 2022 to uh, take care of things both physically and mentally. And we wish her all the best because uh, when she's healthy, what an entertaining and talented player to watch. Um, crazy to think it'll be, you know, three years coming up from her first win in Indian Wells and, and later in the summer, her, uh, her win in, in New York time just flies. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let's keep focused on uh, Canadian tennis and look at the Tennis Canada Awards quickly. I'll just run through them and then Ben, you can, Share your thoughts, but Leila Annie Fernandez cleaned up, winning both Female Player of the Year, Female Singles Player of the Year, and I should also mention Most Improved Player of the Year on the women's side uh, for Canada. So cleaned up in the awards and deservedly so. Uh, Gabby Dabrowski won the Female Doubles Player of the Year with her winning the uh, National Bank Open in Montreal, making three other WTA finals and the semis of the U.S. Open with Luisa Stefani. And she also represented Canada at the Olympic Games, and, uh, and then Victoria Mavoko wins Junior Player of the Year, and she's only 15 years old, won three titles, and is ranked number 32 in the junior ranking. So there's the hardware from Tennis Canada. Uh, ben, uh, your thoughts on uh, any of those uh, winners? Well, first, firstly, uh, Leila Annie Fernandez was a complete lock to win this award, uh, taking home Female Player of the Year. We knew that from the get-go. Just a remarkable, fabulous season. The historic run to to the finals of the Flushing Meadows, and we talked about the quality of opponents she beat to get there as well before uh, losing to qualifier Emma Raducanu, who had an even more surprising run. Um, but, you know, just beyond that, for me, it wasn't like a one tournament wonder type of year for Layla because she picked up that first title uh, in Monterey back in March, which was a key goal for her. And I think a key stepping stone for her in her young career. Um, you know, we had seen her in the final in a previous year in 2020 in Mexico. Um, she wanted that first trophy and got it in singles. And and also she really delivered 
uh, in the international stage for Canada. It was unfortunate we didn't have her there uh, for Billie Jean King Cup. Obviously, Bianca unavailable as well. But uh, when Canada did beat Serbia, um, she was the one carrying the torch in singles and doubles alongside Rebecca Marino. Uh, so a special, special athlete, obviously. And, you know, entering 2022, I think ranked 24th in the world. It, it wasn't just the finals U.S. Open for me. It was collectively the season. And she doesn't even turn um, 20 until next September. <laughs> That's right. And she's, only, and she's only two years removed from being Canada's junior female player of the year. So the improvements are coming, um, you know, fast and furious for Layla Annie. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just been, you know, as I mentioned later on with, with Michael Downey, boy, you and me have been talking to her since it feels like forever, uh, the number of times we've had her on this podcast. And just every time we talk to her, she's taken another giant leap forward. So uh, to our listeners and our Leilani Fernandez fans, we do hope to have her back on in the first month of, uh, of the season. I can't make any promises, but uh, looking forward to seeing, okay, what's, what's the goal this time around, Leila Annie? And nothing would surprise me uh, in her response to that question. Yeah, yeah, no question. Uh, obviously, um, Gabby Dabrowski, a lock as well to win female doubles player of the year. And it, it wasn't just about the fact that she is the best uh, Canadian doubles player that we have. It was about, for me, really like a career type of season and finding this new partner that she meshes so well with in Louisa Stefani. Just unbelievable what they did in the summer. Yeah, those two are a great match together. And Stefani actually put Gabby out of the Olympics. So that was kind of, uh, I don't know if awkward's the right word, but a little mm-hmm. bit different to be bounced by your your good buddy and, and regular doubles partner, I guess, who knows you so well also. Uh, it was great to see Gabby win on home soil in Montreal. That was really special. And um, I've, I've got to say, the, the one award that I don't want to say I disagree with, but I would have voted otherwise was the most improved player because Leila Annie already took home the two big ones. Uh, but to me, Sharon Fishman had a fantastic mm. season. Uh, mm. She ended up qualifying to play in the year-end uh, WTA championships for the first time. Her ranking is on the cusp of the top 20 in women's doubles, uh, won a, a, a women's 1,000-level tournament as well. And so I think uh, given what she did, she deserved serious consideration, and, and I would have thrown my vote her way. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good point. And obviously, I think for a lot of these junior players, um, we still sort of have to learn their names, get accustomed to them and, and hope we will see them on the big stage. Victoria Mboko, um, still just 15 years old, but uh, she won three titles in 2021. So you can tell uh, that she's a special young talent and ranked right now number 32 in the junior rankings. I, I know we had another topic, which I thought was fun, which we're calling favorite tournament of the year. Just to be clear, does it have to be a WTA tournament or, or any tournament? Well, I've got my WT answer, and then later I've got my ATP answer. So that's how I'm going to play this one. Okay. Um, okay. And so for women's, it was the Miami Open, and I won't really duplicate what I said earlier, but it was just great to see Bianca back and to show us what she can do when she's when she's healthy. I mean, up until the finals, unfortunately, against Ash Barty when she had to retire uh, mid-match. But uh, to me, um, you know, the fourth round, she was uh, she took out Anisimova, in, in what showed us some potential for a great Canadian-American rivalry down the road. Uh, took out Muguruza in the quarters. Uh, Muguruza, who was fantastic last season. Uh, Cerebus Tormo was a, a crazy match where Bianca was bageled in the second set but finished it off. And then uh, Zachary, as you mentioned, uh, first and third set tie breaks for Bianca. So to me, that was uh, a really fun women's tournament because it was so nice to see Bianca back and playing so well. 
I like that choice. Um, I went to the clay for my favorite WTA tournament of 2021 and the Madrid open this year was quite unbelievable. A breakthrough tournament for arena Sabalenka beating Ash Barty in the finals, taking out the world's number one player, six, four in the third, but it, it wasn't just about a big final and a big title for me for arena Sabalenka. If you look at the quality of matches in this event and the players who played, it was in a way like a precursor to some of what we saw at Roland Garros and just unbelievable tennis. Spadosa actually made the semifinals there. Anastasia Pavlichenkova, we know she had this big run at Roland Garros making the semis. She was in the semis there before falling to Sabalenka. She had a great win over Mukova. Barty played a three-set thriller with Kvitova. She also beats Fiontek. Um, Tamara Zidonsek, we will remember, also made the semifinals of Roland Garros. Barty needed three long sets to beat her in the second round, which I found very interesting. Belinda Bencic had a great tournament. Uh, she won a tough match over Jabur. She lost to Bedosa. So just so much great tennis mixed into this one. And surprisingly enough, uh, Bedosa beat Krejcikova in the first round of this tournament. Um, but Krejcikova just went on a run after that. So I, I thought it was just really interesting looking back at this one because I had remembered so many great matches from Madrid. And sure enough, uh, this confirmed it. It's funny. What you're telling me right now is just confirming why I don't bet on tennis. Because <laughs> yeah. how can you ever tell what's coming next? I, I mean, know. Honest to God. Um, yeah. not, not for me. Uh, never mind the fact that I got three kids to send to post-secondary one day. So that's where my money needs to go if I ever have any extra. Um, yep. Let's look ahead to 2022 before we wrap on the women's side and each give maybe one or two predictions we have for 2022. And, you know, we're, we're notoriously good at, um, you know, bungling these things up. So this should be fun. But here we go. I'll give two. And uh, one is that Leila Annie Fernandez will make the top 10 uh, I am just so convinced by her resolve and her focus um, that it would not shock me whatsoever if she took that next leap. And she's got a lot of part of the year where she doesn't have a ton of points to defend either. So I feel mm -hmm. like there's a lot of potential for gains for her this year. And my other one, going from a younger player to an older player, is that Serena Williams makes one last run at a Grand Slam uh, in brackets I have here if she's healthy, of course. Um, but I think if she's in good health, consistent health, and can get through a two-week slam event uh, on her own terms, I, I think she's going to make a run. And honestly, it could be any slam. It'd be pretty cool to see it at Wimbledon or, or the U.S. Open, I think. Um, but I think she's got one last one in her, even though we're coming up on the five-year anniversary of the last major that she won in Australia. I think a lot of people would love, love to see that. I'm certainly not going to counter out. I love the Layla pick as well. My two predictions, both younger players, both Americans, actually, I didn't plan that. It just, just turned out this way. And I believe you spoke to her actually earlier in the year from the National Banco from uh, in Montreal, actually, was Amanda Anisimova. And this has been a young, sensational talent that we followed. She had a real setback with some injuries and uh, some tragedy in her personal life with her father. But uh, we were seeing signs of her great tennis, I think, towards the tail end of 2021. She actually played really well in Montreal, making the round of 16. And for me, her ranking does in no way reflect the type of tennis she can produce. She's just outside the top 20, uh, 75 right now. Wow. I think she has a resurgence 
resurgent season in 2022 and can crack the top 20. Her career high is number 21. Uh, she's been to a semifinal of a Grand Slam. I think she has a huge bounce back year. That's kind of my bold prediction there. Yeah, she's a top 30 player to me, no doubt. I mean, it was a few years ago now that she made the semis of Roland Garros, right? And mm-hmm. uh, I think what you just mentioned, plenty of reason why it hasn't clicked uh, over the last 12 to to 18 months but uh yeah i'm fully on board for for that prediction as well yeah and and look my second prediction i would say is a safer one but but you never know uh coco goff i think has been steadily making inroads in, in her career each season year by year she had a nice title this year on the clay again produces pretty consistent grand slam results and singles she's a great doubles player as well i should mention but uh quarterfinals i believe she did this year at the french open yes quarterfinals and uh playing well as well the wta thousands uh wta 1000s Part of me quarterfinals in Montreal semifinals uh, in Rome. And my prediction is she is going to just crack the top 10 currently sitting number 22 in the world. So I certainly think that's possible for her. Yeah, I like that too. And I'd love to see her and Leila Annie match up a few times this coming year. And uh, I'd love that as a future rivalry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. I think that for would sure. be that would be fantastic. Um, before we get to your interview with uh, Tennis Canada CEO and Chairman Michael Downey, um, just sort of tying everything together with Tennis Canada and and the type of year we had in 2021. Firstly, it was so great that we're talking about the National Bank Open and Omnium Banque Nationale from Montreal. That means the tournaments return. And I feel like we are back on track, but there is more we can do. And Tennis Canada does have a fundraising campaign. It is called Where I'm Raised and Where I'm Raised, Tennis Canada's year-end fundraising campaign aimed at combating the impact of the pandemic pandemic, pardon me, which continues to be felt throughout the tennis landscape. Contributions will support initiatives like increasing accessibility to the sport for all Canadians, improving and winterizing tennis facilities, and ensuring everyone has the opportunity to love and play this sport at the highest level, regardless of your age, gender, or skill. You can support this initiative and have your donation matched. Visit whereimraised.com. I love this. Yeah, and I like that this isn't just for our high-performance athletes, but it's also aimed at youth and community-focused tennis initiatives in Canada. There's also been so much great support from our professional players who did not have to step up and do mm-hmm. this, but in particular, Layla, Bianca, Felix, Milos, and Sharon Fishman all stepped up to make donations. In fact, Bianca, up until the end of 2021, so I know that's only basically... Today, our first day of posting this podcast, but Bianca is going to match anything up to $50,000. So that's great to me. That speaks to the sense of community that our players feel um, uh, and and what they can do to help contribute to the growth of the sport here in Canada. And, and funds also go towards supporting women and girls development in the sport, which is so crucial. So if you can help out uh, and you're a big Canadian tennis fan, then uh, any assistance would be appreciated. And, uh, you know, Part of this um, campaign was having Michael Downey on our podcast today and uh, chatting with him as we've done each of the past few years to sort of assess how the season has been in Canada, what have been the ups, the downs, the challenges and the successes. And he speaks at length also about this fundraising campaign. So let's take a listen and then, Ben, we can recap. But here's Michael Downey on Matchpoint Canada. This morning, uh, so happy to be joined by uh, Tennis Canada CEO and Chairman Michael Downey, who once again is our guest here on Matchpoint Canada. And 
what better way to end 2021 than having a look back at all the accomplishments and successes that we had in our country. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to join us again. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. We might as well start with the highs, and there's plenty of them. Uh, I want to ask you about the highlights of the 2021 tennis season for yourself. Were there any particular results, matches, or big moments from our crew of players uh, that really stood out for you when you look back? Oh, I think it was, uh, there was many of them, as you said, Mike, but for me, uh, Layla Annie Fernandez and her run at the U.S. Open was one for the ages. To think that 19-year-old, you know, took down three top 10 players, including Osaka. Uh, she didn't get the results she wanted in winning the Open, but um, what a phenomenal run. And, and you know, it, it ended with her being the Canadian Female Athlete of the Year, which was such a deserving award. And we're going to to see a great 22 and 23 and onwards with young Layla Annie Fernandez. It's amazing. Ben and I have talked to her since she was, you know, 16, 15, 16 years old. And uh, what a sweet kid. What a nice girl. And you're always kind of surprised when the first big moment happens. I mean, Jeannie in 2014, Bianca in 2019, even though you knew the immense talent that was there with Layla Annie Fernandez, I got to say a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of what we expected. Did it catch you off guard at all? It, it did to a certain degree. Like we always knew that she had great potential. You know, she um, she had had great victories through the years, you know, including some great uh, performances at Billie Jean King Cup. And she obviously won the junior Roland Garros singles title uh, when she was 17. So the potential was there. But, you know, I, I think we all were a little caught off guard with that great run at the U.S. Open. But I will say, you know, her father told me that she had phenomenal training in the summer. Um, and she was really ready for the U.S. Open. And I think it just all came together in such a special way. And that's usually what happens. Eh? There's that breakout event. You know, we saw Dennis do it in Montreal when he beat Rafa. And I think Leyland just came through in, in New York. But it's not a one-off wonder. She's going to have many of those uh, phenomenal results. Yeah, and she's got so many fans worldwide. Uh, both Ben and I were so pleased to see that our number one episode of last year uh, was Leilani Fernandez when we spoke with her at the U.S. Open after her quarterfinal victory. And even uh, the year before when she made the finals in Mexico, that was our biggest episode of 2020. So there's definitely an appeal, I think, for her that goes beyond just our own borders. Very, very much so. And, you know, I think you hit it. She's, um, she's just a lovely individual, very well-grounded, great values. And um, when you couple that with a performance on court, you've got a very, very special uh, young woman who's going to inspire uh, many, many people to pick up a racket in Canada over the next decade. Yeah, and here in our country, we were lucky enough to get to see her in person and other athletes as the National Bank Open was able to get off the ground in 2021 in, in both Toronto and, and Montreal. And even with certain restrictions in place to, to be conducted safely, how important was it to see fans able to catch live tennis again in those two cities? Oh, I think it was, you know, unbelievably important. You know, our fans had, had obviously missed 2020 when we had to cancel both events. So, so to bring them back, uh, both live, we were able to host about 50,000 fans in the week in Toronto and another 50,000 in Montreal. So they were small numbers compared to the, say, 330,000 fans we would normally host among the two events. But, but they wanted to come. 
and they saw great tennis. And it was just nice to see world-class tennis back in Canada because beyond the National Bank Open, we didn't have a lot of competitive structure in 21. Like all the challengers were canceled because we just weren't in a position to stage them. So to be able to stage kind of the granddaddy, uh, the National Bank Open in August was very special. How important is it to get those challenger events, those ITF events in our country back up and running? I know the ATP had kind of gotten some hot water lately with some of his comments about what the challenger tour is really designed to do. But for those players ranked outside the top 100, they really need these events to to help further their, their dreams and aspirations, don't they? Oh, very much so. Like, you know, one of the things we're most concerned about is the uh, limited competitive structure that Canadian players have been able to take advantage of in both 20 and 21. And there's, for many of these athletes, they just haven't been able to compete at home. And the challengers are very important because it gives the Canadians an opportunity to take advantage of wild cards that we have with all of these events. So they get to compete at a level that they may not normally be able to compete in. And that's how you get breakthroughs. And we've seen Canadians do so well in this National Bank Challenger Series, like, you know, Dennis won Drummondville before he had the breakthrough in Montreal and Layla and she won Granby. So we've had all kinds of examples of Canadians breaking through and taking full advantage of this. And they haven't been able to do it for 18 months. So obviously one of the key things we want to see up and uh, start up again in 22 is the, is the Challenger Series because the Canadian players need them and they're a big uh, part of their success becoming pro players. And we love them in the tennis media as well, because that's when we get to know the next group that's coming up and have chances to talk to them and give them some exposure as well. So fingers crossed for that. Um, I've got to ask you, because it can't always be rainbows and, and sunny skies, but what were the biggest challenges or the tougher moments in your view for Canadian tennis over the past 12 months? Well, I think I've hit on one, our inability with our provincial partners to stage competitions, I think is, is being very disappointing. It's no one's fault. It was all around, around COVID and the, the safety precautions that were required, but that was obviously very disappointing for our Canadian players that they couldn't compete at home. Uh, and I think the other one is just, even though we ended on a great note being able to, to stage the National Bank Open, it was a stop and start, and it was very stressful on the organization. Like, as you know, Mike, we seriously looked at staging the event in Cincinnati because we could not afford to go two years in a row without our juggernaut events, but we made the right decision. You know, the National Bank Open is the Canadian Open and the Canadian Open should be staged in Canada. So we made the right decision with board approval to take the risk and hopefully stage in Toronto, Montreal, and that came through. But those six months were very taxing in an organization because they didn't really know what they're going to be staging. And the uncertainty is very hard to plan for. Yeah, well, I think you guys did a great job, and I'm not just saying that because I host your podcast, but as a tennis fan, first and foremost, and a a tennis parent, I was able to bring my seven-year-old to see his first live tennis match uh, in Toronto, which was great, and uh, both Ben and I caught some fantastic uh, tennis. The fans were certainly thrilled to be able to see it here on our own soil, and uh, looking forward to hopefully even bigger and better uh, this coming summer in 2022. As we look ahead to the the coming tennis season, which is pretty much upon us right off the bat here in January, uh, is there any player in particular that you're really excited to see continue their development this year? 
oh, there's a ton of them. Like, this is the strength of Canadian tennis right now. Like, it's not just a, a, a one player that you look at to have the breakthrough. Like, you know, you go down the list. I, I think even though Bianca is not going to play the Aussie Open, she'll come back. Like, she's going to come back with strengths because she's got so many weapons. Um, and once she gets back on the bike in terms of competitions, we're going to see great results from her. Obviously, Layla Annie Fernandez is, you know, she's just starting a, a great journey here. And we have high expectations for her to start the year strong and she'll end the year strong. And then you've got Felix and Dennis who we know have had great off seasons and they're both knocking on the door of the top 10 in the world and they want to get in there and stay there. So I think they're going to have another breakthrough year in terms of uh, where they end the year ranking wise. And then you've got great doubles players. Like you've got Gabby and you've got Sharon, both more than capable of being top 10 in the doubles. And so a lot of things that we can really look forward to, but I'll end this note. I, I especially look forward to Milos coming back and I know he's been delayed again. We do talk often. He will be back. He's just, you know, he just struggles with his injuries right now. And it'll probably be, you know, after the Aussie swing that we see the big hitter come back and it's going to be great to see him in that serve come back and, and inspire so many Canadians. I'm really glad you mentioned him because that was going to be my next question anyhow, is that Milos and, and also Jeannie Bouchard have kind of been forgotten to some extent because of all the great success the younger group have, have had. But those two really paved the way in terms of putting Canada on the map, in terms of singles results. They've done so much for us, but have had such bad luck with injuries in, in recent years. What do you think fans can expect? And you already mentioned with Milos a bit there, but what do you think fans can expect from the two if they're able to return to good health this year? Well, I think we have high expectations, but we've also got to realize, you know, Milos is is just turned, I think, 31 and um, he hasn't played an awful long time. So, you know, who knows how fast he'll really come back. And Jeannie, you know, she went through the, I guess, the shoulder, the shoulder surgery and she's got to come back. And I know she's been practicing in Montreal. I heard about that the other day. So hopefully she can return sometime early in 22. But I think you're right, Mike. We should never take for granted or forget the fact that those two Canadian champions actually did pave the way. And I think that's going to be their legacy more than anything else. You know, you know, Milos may be in a point now where he's never going to win a grand slam being at 31 and, and probably not fully uh, up to speed from, from an injury end, but you can never take away what he did in those breakthrough years. I mean, I still remember it was either 2010 or 11 where he had the breakthrough at the Aussie open. No one knew anything about him. And to a certain degree, he had no one ahead of him. He had Daniel Nestor in doubles and Daniel was great, but he didn't have a singles player ahead of him that was inspiring. So he paved the way. And we all know, because there's all kinds of stories about this where, you know, he'd be in Montreal and you'd hear about Dennis and Felix and Bianca talk about him and Jeannie and how they inspired them and gave them a sense of belief. And that's what Canadian singles tennis needed was a sense of belief that if they if they train, if they worked hard, they could actually make it because, you know, at this level, believing is is half the formula. And I think Milos and Jeannie gave them this belief. They had to do the work. They had to put in the time. But Canadians have a have a rightful place in the the top of, of world tennis, and um, Jeannie and, and Milos paved the way for these young kids, and they're paving the way for the next generation. There's no doubt that Dennis and, and Bianca and Felix probably had an influence on young Layla Annie, 
and the kids coming up are going to look at her. The 12 year olds of today are going to look at her. And this is this is the kind of vicious circle that you want to be in, that the players keep inspiring the next generation. Yeah, well said. And uh, in terms of Milos and potential uh, slam contention, I like to think back to Goran Ivanisevic, who was uh, nearing the end of his career in 2001 and definitely dealt with a lot of injuries uh, throughout his years on the tour and had that fantastic run as a wild card at Wimbledon. So you just never know what can happen. And with his serve as well, I'd like to think he could still have a, a good run on the grass at Wimbledon. Well, absolutely. And, you know, one thing we have seen with Milos and a lot of a lot of people have said that how does he keep his ranking so high? Like, I know he's fallen because he hasn't played in months, but he continually kept his ranking quite high. And it's because he realized perform at the highest level and his his record in Grand Slams is terrific because he knows that's where he really wants to peak. And I think you're right. If anyone can have that breakthrough, he's more than capable if he's healthy to piece together seven great. Uh, matches at a grand slam and win one of these things. And let's hope, let's hope it's in the cards for this guy because no one deserves it better than Milos Ronic. We've had some listeners who've remarked in recent years with us on social media at the number of injuries. It seems Canadian players have sustained. Uh, Now look, tennis is a grueling sport. We're certainly not the only country affected, Um, but this has been a discussion point I would imagine for tennis Canada in terms of what can be done to limit the amount of time. Some of our players are spending on the sidelines. Well, it is. And it's obviously something the coaches talk a lot about. And and obviously, you know, uh, the coaches of the players do, because in many cases, the coaches are outside Tennis Canada per se. Uh, You know, like in the case of of all of them now, Bianca, Layla, uh, 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 Felix, Dennis, they're all coached by independent coaches at this point in time. I think one of the concerns that probably needs to be thought through is just they're very young. And these kids have broken through at a very high level at a very young age. And, um, you know, there's not many athletes in the world at 19 or 20 or 21 have had the results that these young Canadians have had. And I think there's probably some learning there about just how often they should compete, their rest periods. Are they taking enough time? And, you know, there was there was a lot of disappointment that a lot of these players didn't play in the Billie Jean King Cup final or the Davis Cup final this year. But a lot of them were around just getting the aches and pains out of the body, making sure they've got a a, a holiday of some nature before they get into the boot camp, getting ready for the Aussie Open. And it's hard. It's hard to debate that because the offseason is so short. So these players have just got to learn to take the time that's necessary. And I think they'll get there because you'll learn from the adversity. And um, there's no doubt that, you know, Bianca as an ex- example is going to learn from all the adversity she faces. So once she's fully up in speed, she's going to be a different performer, taking the rest periods that are necessary for her to compete at the highest level all the time. Some of that adversity that uh, that we faced as a, as a tennis nation has certainly been because of the pandemic and the trickle-down effect to not having the same financial capabilities to probably pumping into our training staff, our medical staff. There is a campaign that's going on right now, an important fundraising campaign. It's called Where I'm Raised, and Ben and I are going to be speaking about it on this episode, this final episode of the year. Uh, Michael, what can you say about this campaign, its importance, and, and what it's designed to do for Canadian athletes? Well, we like to do an annual campaign every, you know, November, December. And um, 
this campaign has been very, very successful, and it just shows the support that Canadian tennis has from coast to coast. Because you know, last I heard, there were over five hundred donors that had that had uh, gifted money towards the campaign. But I think the other thing that's really important is it shows just the support of our athletes, both at at the pro level and the junior level who are supporting this campaign. So, you know, you've got Bianca who gave another annual gift. You get Felix, Layla, they all gave gifts to the campaign, which I think is just terrific. Milos gave a gift. So they're giving back to the, to the sport that has benefited them and wanting to help the next gen. But we've also had a lot of support from up and coming juniors, whether they're at the National Tennis Center or a young, young player out in, in, in Vancouver, who have all participated one way or another in the campaign, which I think is just shows a great family of Canadian tennis. So we're so, 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 so lucky that we've got such um, so generous donors in this country that believe in what we're trying to do and uh, their funds will be put to the best use. And we're really, really supportive of the campaign and all the people who have given towards it. Well, all the best with that. And I think it really does prove when you see all those athletes who want to give on their own accord, you've really built a great tennis culture here in Canada over the past five years you've been back. So thumbs up and thank you to all you're doing for the sport, both professionally and at the grassroots level. And Hey, thanks again for joining us to close out the season on match point Canada. It's our, our third one is the official tennis Canada podcast. And on behalf of Ben and myself, just want to wish you a happy new year and, and one with less hurdles and even more successes than 2021. Thanks, Mike. And, and same to you. Uh, you guys do a great job. We uh, really, really appreciate the podcast. So keep up the good work. There you have it. Mike's interview with Can- uh, Tennis Canada CEO and Chairman Michael Downey. And you can tell by his tone, I think he's very optimistic. And obviously, you can break down the amazing results so many of our Canadian tennis players have had over this past year, but optimistic in the direction the organization is going and the direction of the sport right now in our country. He must be so happy he came back to Tennis Canada uh, five (laughs) years ago. It was was mid-2017 that he came back from working with the LTA in the UK. And uh, I don't know if he sensed Canada was on the cusp of something great. Um, Obviously, he had his hand to play in it as well. But uh, it's just been fantastic what's been going on in that time. And, uh, And also, I should say, a fair bit of stress throughout the pandemic as any tennis association worldwide would be feeling, especially one like ours in Canada, who rely so much on the Montreal and Toronto events to provide that necessary funding. And, you know, as he mentioned in our interview, we weren't able to get full crowds in Montreal and Toronto, but at least we were able to get some people through the gates. Thank God we didn't have to outsource the tournament and have it played in Cincinnati. And we didn't have to have it TV only with no spectators Mm -hmm. on site. So that was a step in the right direction. But the amount of stress that must have caused him and others at uh, the top level planning these tournaments. And so um, we're very hopeful that things will look even more normal in 2022. Um, I know you and I were fortunate enough to watch a ton of matches on, on stadium court in Toronto. And uh, it's our favorite tournament of the year too, because of uh, the access, the Canadian players who were there, both the established ones, the ones coming through, and, uh, and Michael gets it, as he also mentioned, the importance of getting our challenger level uh, and ITF tournaments going in 2022 yeah. to give those players the, the very important opportunity they have to get those wild cards and get into those draws to make headway in their, their careers. 
Yeah, certainly those lower level tournaments are are also crucial. And I can't wait to have those back at ones like Ramby and Gatineau and, and even the Tevlin Challenger that we get here in Toronto, all really important tournaments and getting tennis as well over on the West Coast and Calgary, Vancouver. We need those small tournaments to continue to grow the game. Um, Plenty more to recap here. We haven't even touched on the men's side and time to transition, I think, to the season. It was on the ATP and for the men's tour, uh, four Grand Slams, three of them won by Novak Djokovic, the last taken by first-time Slam winner Daniil Medvedev. So much to cover here as well. Um, covered plenty on the women's side, but uh, we'll start with best match of the year. And I guess I can begin here and I'll, I'll give us two. If we're just talking about an ATP tour level match, not played at a grand slam, my personal favorite watching came at the Barcelona open, a spectacular final between Rafael Nadal and Stefano Tsitsipas. Nadal saved, I believe a set point in this one late in the third set, winning six, four, six, seven, seven, five. Not not only was this about sort of a resilient Nadal win for me, though, it was also about like Stefano Tsitsipas and another giant step of how well he is playing, um, particularly on clay. And for me, that was kind of a key lead in tournament for him uh, to get to that Roland Garros final and find himself up two sets to love against Novak Djokovic with an opportunity to win his first uh, career major. So that final was unbelievable over three hours. My best match of the year, though, on the men's side, Tsitsipas also involved in this one. And on the losing side, unfortunately for him, Carlos Alcaraz defeating him in five sets in the third round of the U.S. Open. Such an electric match. And for me, I, I mean, we'd, we'd read, we'd watched about this 18-year-old Spaniard and how good he can become, how good he already is. But I, I thought this was like another level, what I was witnessing, um, the level of ball striking, the way he was striking the ball and just completely took over in the fifth set. And I remember Pass after losing this one saying he had never seen hit someone hit the ball that hard in his life. So that's a name I feel like we're going to be hearing a ton of over the next decade. Yeah, looking forward to seeing what he has in store for us this year uh, as we're going to be following him for a full season and it'll be on our radar. Uh, I've also got a CC Pass loss for my match of the year. And uh, <laughs> sorry, Stefanos, um, we really did enjoy talking to you when you're in Toronto, so mm-hmm. don't take any offense. But uh, And you alluded to it, and I went for one at the Slam, so I hope I was allowed to do that. Well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's all I got here. So uh, Djokovic defeating, defeating CC Pass in those five sets for the French Open title. And to me, what was impressive about it was not just coming back from being down two sets to love uh, to deny CC Pass his first ever major victory as it seemed like he was heading towards it, but the fact that he did that after beating Rafa Nadal, the king of clay, in the semis, to me, makes that result even more impressive. Uh, so many impressive moments from Novak over the past year, but to me, that one really stands out. Yeah, uh, incredible. And uh, I should point out tennis.com listed the semifinal match between Djokovic and Nadal at Roland Garros as their number one of the year. It was jaw-dropping tennis that third set in particular some of the best you'll ever witness on clay but you hit the nail on the head for him to physically uh, overcome not only beating the Dow but coming back and finding a way back in a match a grand slam final where he's down two sets to love um a- incredible result that will lead us i i think comfortably into our mvp of the season and Gee, who could it be <laughs> would we get fired if we pick somebody else other than Surprise novak me. Djokovic? well not if they were canadian they'd probably keep us if 
if we pick yeah, the Canadian at least. Yeah. That's that's right. But uh, who else? Who else realistically could you possibly name here? Daniil Medvedev had an incredible season. He's world number two. He won the U.S. Open. All credit to him. But this belongs to Novak Djokovic, winner of three of four slams. He now has 20 overall. I really thought he was going to pull off the, the calendar slam. I honestly did. The fact that he was one match away was astounding. The only misstep for me that he had the entire season, it wasn't the U.S. Open, was the Olympics. That was really where something kind of went wrong for him, uh, you know, faltering against Vera firstly, and then unraveling against Carreño Busta in the bronze medal match before uh, leaving with a shoulder injury. But just he he reasserted his dominance so quickly right at the beginning of the season in Australia, winning for a ninth time. And then, you know, he climbed Mount Everest, as he said, beating uh, Rafael Nadal at the French Open in the 70s, winning that title. I think after he did that, he probably felt a little bit invincible heading to Wimbledon. Yeah, I've, I've got Djokovic too, obviously. And anyone who says, uh, you know, someone other than Djokovic is clearly out to lunch. Uh, the Olympics, to me, he was feeling so much pressure, I got to say, uh, going for not only the calendar slam, but the, the golden slam, as they call it, to try and get that Olympic gold medal as well. And then when you get to the bronze medal match, I feel like it's such a letdown because you're, you're not playing for gold. And, and that's what was your main focus. That's true. And it kind of reminds me of when I was younger and uh, Team Canada in hockey, just to do a little uh, segue here. Um, in the 1998 Olympics, they uh, lost to the Czech Republic in the, uh, in the semis, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, and were not going to progress to the gold medal match. Found themselves in the bronze medal match against, I believe it was the Finns, where they were heavily favored. And they lost that one, too. And it's just, it's hard to get up for and mentally motivate yourself after you're feeling such a, a big loss. So um, I agree that that was a tough one for him, but it, it wasn't surprising given the weight that he was carrying around and, and just the fact he made it to the U.S. Open finals. And, and I said that several times last year. I just want to see him get there to yep. have the opportunity to play for it. And it didn't work out for him. Credit to Medvedev, but what a heroic season from Novak on the tennis court. Yeah. And uh, he's he has to be, I think, the overwhelming favorite of the big three and probably Nadal and Federer both admit this, that he is the the main favorite right now to, to win that Grand Slam title count with all three of them sitting at 20, where he is at physically, where he's at, uh, of course, in the rankings and his level of play these days. Uh, most improved player of the year for 2021 on the ATP side. There are a lot of routes you can go here. I wanted to make a choice of someone I had the privilege of speaking with at the National Bank it. Open. I knew it. Yeah, Casper Ruud, who I, I spoke to just ahead of the tournament in Toronto, and such a leap in the rankings, of course, going from number 27 to qualifying for the NITO ATP Finals, finishing the season number eight. Spectacular season, five ATP titles, three Masters quarterfinals on hard courts, and a hard court title in San Diego. So the big thing for me is you know, obviously he established himself as a fantastic clay court player, but also established himself as a great player on other surfaces, which I think maybe others thought he wasn't capable of. He's proven it. Got that ATP 250, three Masters quarterfinals, as I mentioned, just playing unbelievable tennis, uh, especially like latter half of the season post post French Open as well. So uh, another contender to watch for in 2022, particularly when Roland Garros rolls around, I would say. 
you know what's funny is the longer I do this podcast with you, the more I think I know how your brain works. And <laughs> I think I would have had an easier time predicting your responses to these questions than yeah. coming up with my own, to be perfectly honest. Like, I knew you were, were going to pick Casper Ruud. That's so and funny. I, think, I mean, obviously, he was in the mix, too, for me. But I'm like, I'm going to leave him for Ben because I know Ben's <laughs> going to pick him. Because when you interview a player one-on-one and then they go on to to do well, not that you feel you had anything to do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe a little good luck rubbed off. But I feel like you just you're kind of rooting for them to do well after yes. you've spoken with them for some reason, and it's not like you're cheering for them like a fan, but it's just um, I don't know, maybe selfishly you you want something good to come from. from yeah, and it, especially I think when when we've interviewed players who've been you know so gracious with their time and and also just um, invested in the the interview and, and focused and giving thoughtful answers, which I think we uh, were we're very grateful to to all our interviewees this season, because they've all been terrific and engaging. Just Felix the other week was uh, terrific. I thought with his analysis and his game and yeah, we've been very lucky in in that front. Yeah. My, my MIP, I'm just going to do it real quick here so we can keep moving along. But uh, Cam Norrie from the UK who leapt from number 71 in the rankings to number 12 over the course of the past year, which is pretty incredible uh, at the age of 26 as well. So sort of, you know, in that middle range of a career, and, uh, you know, I got asked a lot about him when I do some radio hits for TalkSport over in the UK. And in the past, when I'd speak with them, it was always Andy Murray and, and Joe Conta focused. And I feel like the Brits have a lot of reason to be, you know, excited about what Cam Norrie can do next. And obviously on the women's side, Emma Raducanu. So uh, kind of fun to learn a little bit more about some other British players for when I do those, those radio, hit, radio hits. But he's my most improved player on, on the ATP this year. Yeah, that that's a great pick. He logs so many wins and matches this year too, consistently winning throughout the season. I should mention the winner of the most improved player as picked by the ATP was uh, Aslan Karatsev, who of course, another great selection, just emerged on the scene, a monstrous first half in, in particular. Uh, we'll shift over to our favorite Canadian match of the year. I think a lot of great options here and I will head over to Wimbledon. For me, it was Denis Shapovalov beating Karen Hachinov in five sets in an absolute thriller at the all England club. For me, I would argue that was the biggest win of his career. Um, Just, just reaching that semifinal at at Wimbledon. You could see what it meant to him. It took such uh, a mental and physical toll. That match was so intriguing back and forth. Great shot making for both players. Someone had to win it. Hatchnov, I thought played great on his side. Chapovalov served exceptionally well that entire tournament at Wimbledon. And, you know, he, he kind of dodged an early first round bullet playing uh, Philip Kohlschreiber sort of a savvy veteran gets through that one in a long kind of effort in five sets. And after that, he just took off and, um, you know, he had opportunities in that semifinal against Djokovic as well, especially in that first set, he was right there. So we saw how much that loss hurt him. I think falling to Djokovic in the semis, we saw how much that win over Hatchinoff meant to him in the quarters. Yeah, great tournament and just had your mouth watering at what Dennis could do if he could produce that level all the time or more consistently. But it's there, which is more than than some players can say. He's got that ability to play that level of tennis. Mine was also a Wimbledon match, and it was Felix Auger-Aliassime who defeated uh, defeated top 10 player uh, Sasha Zverev. Uh, And what I liked about this one is not just that he beat such a top-level player in the round of 16 at a slam, but that he held a two nothing uh, lead in sets, Felix did, and then squandered the third and the fourth, but was able to 
um, you know, get things back on track and take the fifth set, which was in stark contrast to what happened to him at the Aussie Open against Karatsev, who you had just mentioned a few moments ago, where Felix was leading 6-3, 6-1 before the wheels came off. You could almost mm-hmm. say Felix was responsible for the creation of, of Karatsev in the season he went on to had, possibly. So for him to be able to find himself in a similar situation and not let the moment get to him, uh, that's why I feel like that, that win for me was, uh, was such a big one. And of course, Felix at the U.S. Open did it again against Roberto uh, Batista Agu, where he won the first two, lost third and fourth, and grinded it out in the fifth. So I think Felix is really starting to show us that mental resolve, um, and that should bode well for him in the future as he seeks his first ATP title, which I'm very confident is going to be coming in the next 12 months. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Fingers crossed it does. And we'll, we'll go over to the Tennis Canada Awards as well. And he was a lock, I think, as well. Felix Ocielli, team getting male player of the year, um, jumping 10 spots in the ranking places, 21 at the start of the season, finishing number 11. He did have a brief stint in the top 10. He's also uh, most improved male player of the year. Denis Shapovalov taking home the male doubles player of the year and a junior to watch for Jaden Weeks. I believe he's 17 years old when Winning, uh, the male junior player of the year, another name to keep on your radar. Uh, we'll shift over to our favorite tournament of the year. I'll let you take the lead on this one. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going with Wimbledon for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it's the first year you and I got press credentials to Wimbledon yep. and we covered that virtually, but still, <laughs> even though we weren't on site, it felt pretty special to uh, be covering that event. I mean, that was the one that I grew up with. I've said it time and time again. So for our regular listeners, they're like, yeah, we get it. You like Wimbledon. Okay. But I grew up with it. It hooked me on tennis. And so it was super special to cover it for the first time. And I got to ask Roger Federer a question in his opening press conference there. And it's not a fed fan thing. And it's certainly not a knock against Rafa and Novak before any of their fans chime in here, but it's just the fact that it could very well have been his final Wimbledon ever. We don't know. I hope I'm wrong on that. But either way, it was pretty cool to ask the guy that's that's dominated uh, there uh, better than anybody a question in the first time I covered Wimbledon, the tournament I grew up loving. Yep, that's that's a great answer. Um, yeah, w- will you have that up op- uh, that opportunity again? I hope so. I would love that. Uh, my pick it, it came just a bit later in the season, and honestly, people have asked me what is my favorite major of the year, and if I had to pick one, I love all four. If I had to select one, it is the U.S. Open for the atmosphere and the electricity, and. Maybe I'm choosing this as well as my favorite tournament of the year because 2020 was just not the same watching Flushing Meadows. You didn't have those crowds and that atmosphere in New York. So to get it back and and the way um, they returned and, and filled, you know, filled the stadiums and rushed to the box seats. I, I thought was just incredible to remember how great live tennis is again with an excited, a fired up audience and the matches at Flushing Meadows this year were all just like incredibly, incredibly good. Some early like epic five setters. I remember Andreas Seppi beating Fuksovic like 15-13 in a fifth set tiebreaker on a side court and the crowd was going bonkers. Novak Djokovic had so many awesome matches actually even early in this tournament if you remember his battle with Jensen Brooksby I think in the fourth round there they played this epic four set match where they were jostling back and forth I think they had a deuce game which was like 20 minutes long so these awesome matches Felix Ocealiasim of course was playing unbelievable tennis uh, getting all the way to the semis and then Daniil Medvedev was just 
almost like more quietly going about his business the whole time, beating players comfortably. So um, maybe it isn't a shock that he ended up with the title. But for me, this was uh, this was the tournament of the year. I'm almost forgetting to mention Andy Murray and Tsitsipas clashing in an epic first rounder and then uh, Murray complaining about him in post. So uh, there you go. That's just another storyline to add about bathroom breaks. So anyway, your memories of last season are so sharp. Meanwhile, <laughs> I can barely remember what I did yesterday here at home with my family. Um, but maybe that's just the age difference. So we'll see what you've got in terms uh, of your mental sharpness in, yeah. in a decade. But uh, yeah, well done. And, and taking me down memory lane there from a fantastic U.S. Open tournament. Of all the tournaments to lose fans, that's probably the one where it, mm-hmm. it hit the hardest, that that contrast to having those empty stadiums and and the echoes as the balls were, were being hit on uh, on Arthur Ashe. So it was great to see fans back there again. And uh, look, that's the easiest one for us to get to due to proximity. I'd love to uh, do a Match Point Canada road trip to the U.S. Open potentially in the future. And uh, I've been there once before. Um, watching tennis without a press credentials, and it was fantastic. Um, I think we got to put that on our, our list of things to uh, to do in, in the next couple of years. Definitely on the bucket list and, and should be doable, I think, over the next couple of seasons. We should wrap with uh, predictions for 2022 on the men's side. And I, I, I don't know if this is a conservative prediction or not. I will start, but I'm predicting we get another first time slam champion. And this, this has kind of been a common prediction from the players when they're asked in these little YouTube videos on tennis TV, um, you know, at the beginning or end of the season, what's going to happen in 2020 or 2021. And they kept saying like a new grand slam champion. Um, I think we're going to get another one because of course, Daniel Medvedev has done it. Uh, Dominic team. I'm hoping he, he comes back healthy for 2022. He's done it. Now I'm, I'm looking to another face and the name that might be standing out to me. We've been talking about him a fair bit on this podcast. Could be Stefano Tsitsipas. I wonder if it is possible. And he always plays very well in the first half of the season. So for me, you know, we'll we'll get to an Australian Open preview um, for 2022 calendar season on Matchpoint Canada. But I think he could be a name to watch for. I'm predicting a first-time slam champion. It doesn't have to be him, just somebody. Okay. I, I feel like your women's predictions were a little bit more bold. Um, yes, and I'm they with were. you on this one. My prediction here is is a big one, and I've I've gone out on a limb. I think I had a couple of beverages before I wrote this one down the other night, to be honest. But I've ridden no big three winning a slam in 2022. Um, that is that is very very right? bold. Now I just want to have fun with it because if I get it right, you're going to hear it from me. Okay, yeah. come like end of uh, August, beginning of September. But uh, yeah, you got to you got to tweet this out so you can flex it at the <laughs> right after the final of uh, the U.S. Open. When yeah, maybe that'll maybe that'll replace my my previous biggest boneheaded tweet, which was that Nadal won't play tennis past the age of I think I said 33 or something once. <laughs> A lot of journalists made that mistake. That's okay. Um, um, but regardless, uh, it's going to be okay. Thank you. It's, it's going to be so tough for Federer to, to win one again. So I feel like taking him out of the equation is not a big leap of faith. Mm-hmm. Nadal, uh, he is the, the older between him and, and, and Djokovic. Um, and he didn't win the French last year. So I don't know. Is that a sign? And then Novak, um, and I don't really want to get into this on a sort of political uh, sort of conspiracy level, but uh, is he going to play Australia? We don't know. Right. Um, and so I'm kind of leaning towards, well, if he's not there, then it doesn't make what I'm saying, you know, and who knows how the rest of the year goes. But we are going to get a year at some point where the Medvedevs, Verov, CC passes, and hopefully our Canadian guys take over and, mm-hmm. and take over fully. It's, it's going to happen at some point. 
is this the year? Yeah, probably not, which is why I'm kind of going out on the limb. But uh, I felt like being bold. So so there you have it. There's my wild prediction for 2022. I love it. I, I did throw in one like properly wild prediction that I just realized I'd, I'd written in my notes. I was hoping Stan Wawrinka uh, would be healthy and making a return down under in Australia. He's not quite there yet, but from what I gather, he's you know a month or so away. I think he comes back. He's returning for the clay court season, gets in the rest of the year and snags an ATP 250 title late in the season. He was honestly playing great tennis before he got injured again. You can make the same prediction if you want with Juan Martin Del Potro, who I know is planning a comeback oh, I would love that. in uh, 2022. I would love to see that. Tennis fans would love that. So for me, like these are the two names that I, I think they're probably the most beloved players outside of the big three and maybe Andy Murray uh, over the past 10 or so years are Del Potro and Stan Favrinka. Oh, I think Del Potro for sure, and nothing against Stan, but but Delpo, all he's been through, injury after mm-hmm. injury, and just when he's back, then something new goes, you know, man, if he could have been healthy the past 10 years, what, what could he have done, um, you know, especially on hard court? So love to see him coming back. I hope he can do it on his own terms. And um, yeah, so you think Stan for a 250, not a 500, huh? Just a 250? <laughs> I'm playing it nice and safe. All right, all right, got it. All right, what do we have to wrap up with here? What's next? Oh, we got a, a couple things here. Um, for you, what do you think was the biggest controversy of 2021 in tennis? Yeah. Could be men's or women's tour or, or whatever it is. Yeah, a more recent one, and that's the situation with China's uh, Peng Shui, who still we don't really know uh, what situation she's in. Is she safe? Is she able to speak freely? It, it doesn't seem like she's able to speak her mind in terms of some of the allegations she made not too long ago against the Chinese government official uh, in terms of sexual abuse allegations. And uh, so to me, just the reaction from various players, uh, the ATP versus the WTA tours response and uh, kudos to WTA chairman and CEO, Steve Simon for taking such a strong stance by suspending all WTA tournaments in China until assurances are made for her safety and well-being. And that took uh, a lot of moxie to, to go out and, and take that stance. There's a lot of money in China, big time money on the WTA tour. And we see so many other organizations, whether it's the um, you know, uh, Olympic Committee uh, or other sporting organizations that sort of toe the line with China and their questionable mm-hmm. human rights uh, violations and, and things of that nature. And so I, I was shocked that the WTA took such a harsh stance but good for them. And the controversy is that, you know, other organizations like the ATP wouldn't follow suit. And, uh, and of course that we still don't know. So hopefully she is okay or will be okay. Um, but uh, it's still a big question mark in, in that regards. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd agree with you there. I will just add in one other controversy and this to me, we've, you've spoken at at it uh, about it at length, honestly, and covered it very well, is the ATP's mishandling of the Sasha's Zverev abuse allegations. I think that was pretty disastrous. Of course, we've been talking about this and, and it's been coming up uh, for several months and the allegations uh, go back, you know, a couple of years now. But I, I think that was really, really poorly handled by the ATP, who I, I don't think has still carried through a proper investigation. So that's really all I'll say on that in terms of what I found controversial and honestly disappointing uh, from from the men's tour. We'll shift to a positive note here. Um we love checking in on other tennis podcasts and there's so many of them now. It's such a growing entity. Do you have a favorite tennis podcast you'll name for 2021? 
Match point. Ca- oh, sorry. Um, my favorite <laughs> tennis podcast of 2020. You know what the thing is? I don't get to listen to as many as I'd like to. Like, mm. I follow a lot of the podcasters on Twitter and social media, and a lot of them seem like super uh, likable people. And I want to listen to them. I just haven't found the free time yet. And so when I do have free time, I go back to uh, one that I always enjoy, which is uh, the Body Serve podcast with James Rogers and Jonathan Newman. And uh, I regret that I haven't met these two guys in person yet because they're super fun to listen to. Uh, They got a very casual banter. And it's a different kind of podcast than ours, obviously. We're representing Tennis Canada. So that's a a different sort of focus and, and approach. And ours is very, you know, heavily focused on the guests, the great guests that we have. Uh, but I just love listening to those two as they go back and forth about all kinds of things. And uh, I, I like their intonation. I like their their vast vocabulary that makes me feel like I should learn more English better. Uh, if that makes any sense. <laughs> Read books um, better. Yeah, That's it. Yeah. But uh, guys, if you're listening, love your podcast. Keep keep doing it uh, the way you do. Well, well said. I have uh, a couple picks. I want to give a shout out and they've always been so kind um, on Twitter. It's great making friends in the podcast world on Twitter is uh, the Tennis and Bagels podcast featuring Andre Vanch and Owen. These guys are experts with their statistics. They do great deep dives. Uh, I want to listen to it even more again finding the time and making sure I put it on, but they have a great podcast and another one I will mention. And I spoke to uh, one of the hosts Earlier in the year, actually, Noah Rubin and Mike Katian uh, do the Behind the Racket pod, which is another great podcast, sort of uh, a different perspective, glimpse on the ins and outs of the tour, and they get great conversations with players. You know, the names you don't really think of, guys outside the top 100, guys sort of scrapping on the Challenger tour and giving that other perspective. So they do a, a terrific work, and that's two of like so many awesome tennis podcasts. Check out everyone if you can. Keep coming back to us. We always love having you as listeners. We got a couple more things to get to. Do you have a favorite episode of ours for the year? Yeah, I mean, oh my God, so many. And I feel like I feel that more and more each year because we get such a great, you know, uh, variety of guests. And, you know, our thanks to Tennis Canada and and, and other hookups that we have. And uh, most of them come from you and me, though, I got to say. So a little pat on the back to us and, and what we're able to scramble up each year on the podcast uh personal faves really enjoyed maria chichach uh the acclaimed um chair umpire who we had in episode 36 so check that one out she is i would say uh certainly one of the top few uh, chair umpires in the game at this point in time and i also really enjoyed the shorter uh, chats i had during the nbo uh, national bank open in particular in montreal where i got to talk to coco goff amanda nisimova and uh, veteran Petra Kvitova as well. And I just found those were, although they were shorter, um, really need to get that one-on-one time. And uh, again, so gracious too. I want to give a shout out to Brian Shapiro uh, from the WTA that was uh, giving me really great access to the, the Montreal players, even though we were based here in, in Toronto. Yeah, those those conversations are always great. Um, I'll give one pick from earlier in the season. And I think I've mentioned this to you before. I loved our conversation with Milos Raonic and how open and in-depth he was with us at the front end of the season. I think that chat was just at the tail end of January when he was headed to the Australian Open. Love that one. You can check that out. I believe it was episode number five. I'll also just mention the one. I mean, I just did this interview a few weeks ago. I love chatting with Felix Ocialiasim. It was great to get that opportunity 
we had spoken to him before, but I felt like we got to dive a little deeper here with a, an in-depth conversation. And uh, he was so analytical in his thinking about his game, gave us so many great insights. So if you haven't listened yet to episode 43 and my interview with uh, Felix Ojealiasim in that episode, that was uh, definitely one of my personal favorites. We're almost that done. Episode, we're almost <laughs> yes. done. And that episode was the one where we... Um, first offered up this contest, which we're going to bring to a conclusion here. And exactly. what cooler way to end 2021 on Matchpoint Canada than with a uh, big time giveaway, the Stefano Sisi Pass signed autographed racket from the National Bank Open. And Ben, we got quite a lot of interest in this one, unsurprisingly. Yeah, we had almost 50 entries. So thank you guys so much uh, for, for submitting your name and getting into this uh, contest for the rack giveaway. Awesome. Uh, appreciate the enthusiasm. And I have the draw here and I have my random name generator and I'm ready to click and find out our winner. Here we go. The winner of the signed Stefano Pass racket is Elena Luca, Elena Luca, who I believe contacted us through Instagram. So congrats to Elena. We will be uh, messaging you and uh, sending that racket out to you. That would be a nice uh, sort of New Year's uh, present for 2022. Yeah, that's a big one. That's going to be the biggest giveaway we've had in our time at Point Canada, I feel like. And, you know, we've had a, a year-end briefing with, with Tennis Canada, and we're signed on for another year as the official podcast of Tennis Canada. And they have assured us that there's going to be plenty more giveaways to share with you in the coming year from tickets, hopefully, to the National Bank Open in both Montreal and Toronto, uh, player swag, some Tennis Canada swag as well to uh, give away to our listeners. And uh, I just want to say in my parting comments, uh, thank you for listening to us throughout the year. Thank you to helping our podcast grow over 2021, engaging with us on social media. And I say like 99.9% of our interactions are always so positive. And so I think, I don't know, I guess we're, we put out a lot of positivity, I feel like, and then it comes back to us. And so I really appreciate that. It shows the, the positive side of tennis Twitter and, uh, you know, keep that in mind for 2022, everyone, and, uh, you know, be kind to one another. And uh, thanks for listening once again. Yeah, beautifully said. I uh, can't wait to keep interacting with you guys uh, in the new year. That's my key resolution for 2022, uh, checking in with all our, our listeners and fans and growing this podcast even more. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada, a wrap on 2022. We'll talk 2021, pardon me. We will talk to you next time. Yesterday, now's the time for us to say